I want to also thank you for the generous giving towards the Bibles for the Soviet Union. We, we have arranged for the money that was received to be distributed on, in, a, in a very personal way uh, through friends at Slavic Gospel Association who are then, instead of just dumping boxes of Bibles over there, they're going to use the money that you have given in strategic ways for special opportunities as they come up. I could only describe this trip with words such as unbelievable and unimaginable. Unbelievable and unimaginable. Where all the doors had been closed for decades. Where the word of God could not be preached openly. Where Christians were totally persecuted and often imprisoned just for being a Christian. I couldn't find a closed door for the gospel. I met with many government officials. I couldn't find a closed door. Personally, experientially, I couldn't find a closed door. And when the churches could only be described by the word fervent, I have never experienced anything like these churches, and I'll give a little more detail in a moment. And the spiritual hunger on the part of the world is something we've never seen. Unbelievable spiritual hunger on the part of just everyone you meet. The Bible, the Bible is the hottest thing in the Soviet Union. People really will give a month's pay for a Bible. Unsaved people will give a month's pay for a Bible. I want to tell you what it was like when I arrived and how God had his hand upon my life. As I flew from Brussels, Belgium, on the Aerofloat, that's the Soviet airliner, uh, into Kiev, that's a city in the Ukraine, one of the larger Soviet republics or states, and on the way, I befriended a stewardess, and so as I was getting off, I gave her a New Testament in the Russian language, and she took it and she clutched it to her chest. She said, Spasiba, Spasiba, thank you, with a big smile on her face. As I walked past the cockpit, there was one of the crew members standing in the doorway. I handed him a New Testament. He did exactly the same thing. And my, my trip to the Soviet Union began with that kind of encouragement. But the encouragement was short-lived, for I was about to learn some other things in just a few moments. As we landed there, uh, you, you wouldn't believe the snow. The snow was so high, there was earth-moving equipment moving snow all around this airport. It looked like there was a construction site and the dirt had turned into snow. And as I, as I waited for my luggage with all the other people on the flight, I noticed that they, they were leaving and carrying their luggage away, uh, but I wasn't. My bags weren't there. And I began to, to learn some new things. My bags weren't there because the Lord wanted me to learn a lot of things that I couldn't have learned if I had had my things with me. My bags didn't show up for ten days. I had nothing but the clothes on my back. The next stop was customs, and I was trying to think of the good things about not having my suitcases. And, and it's a wonderful thing, I thought, to go through customs with no suitcases. What are they going to look in? And then I realized I had this very heavy carry-on in my hand, and it was filled with 49 Bibles and Testaments. But I thought, no worry. Perestroika, glasnost, no problem. I step up, they ask me to open my bag, and the young customs official says, what are you doing with so many books and Bibles? What are you going to do with these? I'm going to give them to friends here. You can't bring this many Bibles into this country. I said, but what about Perestroika? What about Glasnost? And I said, with a big smile, because they know I'm a Christian, right? So I have to have a good testimony. And he said, but the regulations haven't changed. And it took him an hour to inventory all my Bibles and keep them. I mean, he wrote a paragraph about each one, you know? And I, I, had, I had to be a good Christian. I had to love him while he was doing that. And I wasn't real good at it. On the outside, I was. 
On the outside I was because I was using my little fledgling Russian and I told him he was doing a wonderful job, how thorough he was at his work and all that kind of stuff. But I immediately, so the first thing I had to do when I got there was ask the Lord to forgive me for lying because the first thing I did was lie in the Soviet Union because that was not my heart. I was very angry at the man. But the Lord, but the Lord allowed that to occur for his good reasons. Well, the suitcases. You see, if I had had my normal clothes and my, you know, 100% cotton white, white shirts, uh, I would have looked uh, a little too affluent for that part of the Soviet Union. As it turned out, I, I, I didn't have... I didn't look affluent at all because the suit I'd had on, I'd, I'd slept in for 24 hours uh, and I had, it, it had need cleaned anyway, you know, because I was just going to sleep in it on the plane and, and, then, and then put it in the bottom of my suitcase when I got there for the rest of the trip. Didn't plan to even wear it. And so, but I did wear it for 10 days. <laughs> now, now, it bonded me to the Russian people because instead of me coming as this affluent American who just has everything, I show up poor. And they have to try to find clothes to cover my body. And so they're taking me to stores. And, it, and so at first hand, I could experience that there's nothing in their stores. It's a city of three million people. We went from store to store to store to try to find one shirt for me to wear. After six or seven department stores, we find one shirt in my size. And I'm just an average size. Only one shirt. Now, when you buy clothes there, you don't, you don't ask what percentage of cotton you don't ask, you know, where is it buttoned down, or you don't ask if it's striped or which color. You just, ask, you just say, do you have a shirt in my size? And finally we found one. It was brown. Brown, brown shirt, charcoal gray suit. I never would have thought of that. You know? <laughs> but you know what? It looked terrific. It looked terrific. <laughs> looked terrific. You know, I felt great. This felt great. And my hands were cold because it was around zero degrees every day and a new snow every day, blizzard conditions. But they couldn't find any gloves in the whole city. Went store to store to store, couldn't find any gloves. And you know what it caused me to do? It caused me to notice that the Russian people don't have any gloves. That most of them out on the street in that cold don't have any gloves. They just have red, really cold hands all the time. So it allowed me to experience firsthand a little bit what it's like to live there. The other thing it did was the Russian people, when they did find a few things to buy for me, they insisted on paying. They only make $30 a month average salary that they were buying for me. And, and, it, and it developed a wonderful relationship that I know will just go on for eternity. Well, about the, about the Bibles. I preached in a couple of churches. And by that time, I preached in seven different churches. I'll tell you about those in a moment, but I want to tell you what happened to the Bible just to show you how the Lord is in control. And he's in control of every detail of your life all day today and tomorrow and the rest of your life and for eternity. But we have a tendency when we're here in our normal habitat not to be alert, to be blessed, to be aware of what God is doing in our lives. But when you're in that kind of a situation, you really are. So I had preached in a church on a Sunday morning. After the service, a young man came up, told me that he thought I might be interested to know that he and his friends had had formed what they think is the first missionary society in the history of the Soviet Union. They were all excited. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, we go out about 100 kilometers, you know, 60, 70 miles every weekend. We go out to the villages and we evangelize. And he said, but we have a problem. He said, we got lots of fruit. People are coming to Christ, but we don't have any literature. We can't get any Bibles or Testaments or we don't have any tracts. He said, can you help me? So about a week later, the church officials... Had, got, became successful and extricated my 49 Bibles from the customs officials. And they came to me and they said, what do you want to do with these? I said, well, give them to this guy over here with the mission, missionary society because he needs them. 
If, if my Bibles hadn't been confiscated, I wouldn't have been able to do that. God knew exactly where he wanted those Bibles. What a wonderful God we're privileged to serve. The churches, just for a moment. If this were a Soviet church, you wouldn't be able to see the aisles. You wouldn't see any aisles. Uh, it would look different because some of you, where the aisles are, the people would look taller because they'd be standing for the service. Uh, they would be standing in the back. They'd be standing uh, outside. Those doors would be open. They'd be standing everywhere to stand. And then they'd be standing all the way outside. There'd be speakers on the outside of the building at every one of the seven churches that I preached in because they can't get all the people in. There's so many people wanting to come. And they think nothing of standing for a two-and-a-half-hour service. They don't even look tired at the end of it. They're just so thankful to be together and to worship our God. Services, two-and-a-half hours long. Typical service, three or four messages, three or four sermons. One ten minutes, maybe one fifteen, one twenty, and, and then a longer one at the end, which I was privileged always to have because I was the foreign guest. Also because it takes twice as long when you're preaching with a, with a translator. When they sing the hymns, when they sing the hymns and they don't have hymn books, they have them all memorized, and they sing with such a fullness that if you closed your eyes and somebody said, how could this be? You, you, you would say, well, everyone in here must have a microphone. And the singing is so full and so strong and they, when they worship that you, they drown out the piano. You can't hear the piano. When the choir would sing a worshipful anthem, and there are four or five anthems in each, each service, There'll be two or three choir directors, and they kind of each do a number or two. They're training the younger ones. But when the choir sings an anthem that's focused in worship on our Lord, the people spontaneously stand in reverence as if it were the Hallelujah Chorus. And they stand in reverence and worship. At the end of a message, you don't pray at the end of your message when you're preaching like you normally would here. You ask them to stand for prayer. And then they pray. There'll be someone pray over here. And then one over here, loud so all can hear. And there'll be eight or ten people that will pray at, uh, at the end of the message. Moved by the Spirit of God, you know what they're praying? They're asking God to help them walk in obedience to the challenge that they've just received from His Word. When, when they give an invitation, they don't give it for salvation. They give it for repentance. Repentance is the only word they ever use. These people are serious Christians. When the only testimony that I ever... I, Six, eight different guys gave me their testimonies. I asked them how they came to Christ. And in each case, every single case, they said I repented at a certain age. I repented when I was 22, 24, 26. I was preaching and trying to preach a message of encouragement. When you're in a situation like that, you want to, you want to, you want to acknowledge the perspective that you have. You want to always do that as a guest speaker. You always want to be aware that God is bringing you there. Uh, and for some reason, that's di that you have a perspective that no one there has. And so you're a steward of that perspective. And I felt that my perspective and my, my position was to challenge them, to be bold, to go for the wonderful opportunities that they have. Because they can be a little timid. They've been beaten down. They've been, they, they've been so persecuted as Christians there that now with the freedom that they have, they need a lot of encouragement to really go for it. And so I never gave the plan of salvation. I, ne I no evangelistic messages at all. And yet every single time I spoke, people repented. One, one evening, this, I'm just giving this in terms of how ripe the harvest is, and the people from the world just flocking in. They don't even have to be invited. A third, a th maybe up to a third of the congregation in any service will be visitors. Curious, coming in to find out about these people. Find out about what truth is. 
And so one evening after I preached, the pastor came afterwards. We were having some fellowship. And he said, I thought you'd be interested to know four people repented outside on the snow tonight. When I preached in the Moscow Baptist Church, which is the largest church in the country, and it's the only church serving nine million people in Moscow. Imagine, only evangelical church serving nine million people. Beautiful church, beautiful facility. And I was privileged to preach right through the weekend, Saturday night, Sunday morning. I did a family life seminar on Sunday afternoon, which they told me was the first one in the history of the country. People just sat on the edge of the chair just to hear the basics about the role of a wife and the role of a husband and a little bit about raising your kids. They've never, they've never had that. They've never been allowed to teach that because they want the government to be the authority over everyone's life. They don't want a man to be authority over his own. They want the government. They don't want a man even to be really authority over his children or teaching his children anything about future things but only have hope in the government. That's the way it's been right up until now. Amazing. As I spoke that Sunday morning at communion, the Moscow Baptist Church was so full, you could imagine people trying to serve communion with the aisles all jammed, and the stairwells were jammed with people, and they were even packed in around behind the choir. You ever been in a church where, where, where people were just jammed in around the choir? You could tell which ones weren't singing. They weren't in the choir. It was just so full of people. And so I'm, I'm pretty good at crowd estimates, so I guess maybe there are 10 or 1,000, 1,200 people here at a balcony all the way around. So the next two days later, I was having lunch with a couple of the pastors from the church, and, and, I, and I said, how many were here on Sunday? And they said, how many do you think? I said, oh, 1,000, 1,200. They said, there were over 3,000 here. I said, how could there be? They said, well, you could only see about a third of them. Well, there's a, a Baptist denominational building right next door. He said every office in the building, three-story building, was filled with people listening on speakers, and there were hundreds of people outside on the snow listening. A fervency on the part of the church. A great hunger on the part of the world. When I sat down with the leader of the Baptist Alliance for the Republic of the Ukraine, a man over 1,300 evangelical Baptist churches in terms of authority, sat down to meet with him. The first thing he told me was that he had read Dr. MacArthur's book on the Charismatics and he agreed with everything about it. Second thing he told me was he read Dr. MacArthur's book on Kingdom Living, Living agreed everything about that. And so I realized God had given this man some trust in me because I was associated with Dr. MacArthur. And so I, I, had, I had his ear just because I, I worked with John and he respected John so much. And so then he had a stack of mail all over his desk. His, mail was, his desk was covered with mail from the West, from schools, seminaries, and colleges in the West. And he started asking me my opinion about them because he had no idea. And they were, they were, they were nearly all from very liberal schools that embraced false teaching. And God gave me an opportunity to tell him not to deal with this one and don't work with that one. And when we're all finished, I realized God was giving us a position, a unique responsibility. And I said to him, I said, Pastor Dukonchenko, we want to help you build a doctrinal church around your fence, a doctrinal fence around your churches. Okay? Now, the reason for that is that these churches over there are very pure, doctrinally, very sound, solid churches in their teaching. Solid. Now, the reason they're so solid is because the persecution from the communists has also been a protective covering. No false teacher would identify with Christ. No one with any, any ulterior motives would identify with the cause of Christ because when you identify with the cause of Christ, bad things would happen to you since 1917, even before that. And so they really have a purity in their churches. But now, with the freedom for people to come from the West and false teachers and people to come and to try to do things and so they can raise money over here and what, who knows what kind of motives, everybody's trying to rush in. 
And so God seems to have positioned us to help them put a doctrinal fence around their churches. Now, how are we going to do that? Dr. MacArthur is going to go and do a pastor's conference, one, possibly two, in this coming year. we are in process to have another of his books translated into Russian, a brand new one just out on shepherdology, uh, and he will use that as a syllabus when he teaches hundreds and we hope thousands of, of, of Soviet pastors. Now, then another very exciting thing is going to happen, and that is that this man over 1,300 churches, and you can pray for him, call him the Duke, okay? Even the Russian people can't say his name, which is Yakov Dukunchenko, and so they call him the Duke, okay? Here's why I want you to pray for the Duke. He is expected to be elected in February the General Secretary over all the Evangelical Baptist churches in the Soviet Union. So he will be the leading Evangelical Christian for that whole country. And he is going to be, he has just enthusiastically consented to come in May and be our speaker for graduation, both both for seminary and for college. Uh, And I forgot to tell you that when this man was a young man, when he was married just four months as a young preacher, he was sent to jail, sent to prison for preaching the gospel where he spent 10 years of his life. He came out, became a pastor again, and because of his leadership and his godly character, uh, rose to to high levels of authority in the church there. We're also going to grant him an honorary doctorate from the Master's College in Seminary. You pray for him. He has tremendous responsibility. I also wanted to mention that Dr. MacArthur is becoming popular across the Soviet Union. The Baptist denomination has a magazine uh, that they put out, I think, once a month. Uh, And he is the first foreign author that they have ever printed articles uh, from. And he didn't even know it. Dr. MacArthur has a book on the family, which has been translated into Russian. It's called Vasha Sumya there. And it's very, very popular. Uh, and they have, they have been run, begun to run it in serial form in this magazine. In other words, each issue of the magazine has the next chapter from Dr. MacArthur's book on the family. So God is using our president already in an exciting way to minister to our brothers and sisters in the Soviet Union. I want to tell you something about the world there, something about that spiritual hunger. I, I've been friends for a number of years with Josh McDowell, and we happened to run into each other there in the city of Kiev, and we visited a school. And they put us in front of a number of classes. This was a school with about 600 children, uh, ranging in age from 6 to 17, about 55 faculty, a delightful school. I was so impressed with every evidence of how well they're teaching there that I, that I approached the uh, principal about uh, sending student teachers to actually do training, and, and of course, a little evangelism uh, along with that. Uh, and very, very positive response, and we'll be trying to work through that and see what would happen. But in any event, as they had us in front of these classes, they allowed students and faculty alike to ask whatever question they wanted to ask, and we were there about four hours. And 80% of the questions were about spiritual things, including how do you become a Christian, what is a Christian, all that. We just got a chance to just say that all over and over again and with such interest. At the end of the day, four or five of the faculty came up around us and they said, we want to be sure that you really understand, really understand what's going on in our nation and the terrible problem that we have. They said, we have a crisis of truth, a crisis of truth. They said, we've been lied to by our government for so many years, we don't know what truth is. Imagine being a teacher who doesn't know what truth is. And then they made a statement that was very arresting to us. They said this, they said, because you are Americans, we believe everything that you say. What responsibility? 
what opportunity for false teachers. I want to talk a little bit about their economy. Their economy is in a shambles. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev is in a very fragile position. The people in the church there asked me to convey to you their prayer request. They said, whatever you think of Mr. Gorbachev and whatever he may, if you think he's trying to manipulate the West or whatever, whatever you think about him, all we know is that we have freedom to worship and to evangelize and we've never had it before in the history of our country. Please pray that God will keep him in power. And he's teetering right now. Okay? He's in a very precarious position, even as we're here today. When Mr. Gorbachev has been quoted in the, in the press a few times in the last couple of months making reference to spiritual matters, two or three times he's been quoted saying that they need to return to spiritual values. I've discovered what he means. No one is working in the country except the Christians. The reason their economy is in such a shamble isn't primarily because it's the wrong system. It's because nobody is working. Nobody is working. They have a proverb. They say this. They say, they say uh, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. The, the, the result of that is, is no production. That's the main reason there's nothing on the shelves in the stores. Now, the reason they don't work, they make $30 a month whether they work or not. Whether they work or not, they don't get promoted. And if they got their pay doubled, they couldn't buy anything anyway. So why would they work? Except for the Christians. The Christians are working as unto the Lord. And everybody's noticing. And they have been persecuted in their workplaces for years. And now they're being held up on a pedestal. And their supervisors are saying, work like him. You say, Everybody should be like him. Be like the Christians. And so when Mr. Gorbachev is saying they, that they need to return to spiritual values, he's just saying the solution to our economic problems is a Christian work ethic. They're the only ones that are working, so we must need whatever they have in order to get our whole country working again. And I want to talk about the government very briefly. I visited about four or five government agencies in Moscow, and so to speak, I just went right in the front door. Even the people and the leaders in the churches said, go in. Go in and just be bold as you can be. All they can do is ask you to leave. They can't put you in jail. We, we don't think so. <laughs> That's, I didn't feel exactly the way you did with that. <laughs> and so I, I started making my runs to government, government offices. I met with the number two man in education for the whole country. I mean, from pre-K to post-doc, over all the universities, etc., and he is very eager to have an exchange program with the master's college, students and faculty. And he says, we don't want to have a lot of paperwork and stuff. Uh, we don't want to mess with the money things. You send your people there, and, and, and we'll take care of them while they're here, and we'll send your, our people to you, and you, you make sure they have enough to eat, and, get, and that's just how we'll do it. Well, we can't take everybody they'd send. We only want to have Christians come. And so this trip, I'm going to try to see him again. And I'm going to say, we're, we want to help you with the selection process. You're going to have so many people wanting to come. We're going to help you with the selection process. And we're, and we're going to have the church leaders uh, recommend to you who should come to the Master's College. And so I think we can cover. That's a prayer request as well. Okay? Then I went to the Bureau of Religious Affairs. Now, those are the people who have been charged with suppressing the church. The official arm of the government called the Bureau of Religious Affairs. They've been in charge of persecution okay, for all these years. So I meet with a young... The young chief of protocol. Give him a gift. He gives me a gift, and we sort of get a little rapport going. Uh, and then I ask him a couple of questions. I ask him this. I said, you've given wonderful freedom to your people. Wonderful freedom to the churches. 
But now they have opportunities to do things they've not been trained how to do. They can now have a Sunday school. They can now teach their children spiritual things. They can now have a youth program and a few more examples. But they have no idea how to do it. Imagine 287 million people in the country, not one youth pastor. Those of you who are aspiring to feel God's calling into youth ministry, pretty good market over there developing. And so I said, if we could send, let's call them church advisors, to come and work alongside your church leaders for maybe one to three years. I said, do you think you'd ever approve something like that? He said, why not? And he just blew me away. I mean, I had, I, I had such a look of astonishment on my face uh, that, that, that he had to react to it. You know, he's embarrassed at how astonished he made me feel. And so he said, isn't that what you are? Aren't you a church advisor? Haven't we approved you speaking in all these churches and you're meeting with church leaders? He said, you must be a church advisor. And I said, well, I guess I am. And, and he said, so we've apparently already made that decision conceptually, so we're just talking about timing. You're here for a few weeks. What's the difference if someone comes for a year, three years? He said, let me tell you how to approach it. And so he gave me suggestions, the steps to take to get approval from them. And he said, I think we'll probably approve it. So you have the world saying, we have a crisis of truth. Because you're Americans, we believe everything you say. You got the government seemingly saying, send missionaries. Incredible. That is government leaders who are atheists, communists. I want to, I could talk for about two and a half days nonstop about things I've experienced there, okay? But I only have about two and a half minutes left. So I have to reduce this from two and a half days to two and a half minutes. It takes just a minute. I want to tell you one of the things the Lord is doing in Moscow right now. In fact, even as we sit here right now, let's see. It is 5 after 10 p.m. tonight in Moscow. And there is a Christian play we'll be finishing up about right now. Uh, it's, it's occurring in the largest theater in Moscow, a theater that seats 2,500 people. It's a play that accurately was taken from Luke's version of the birth of Christ. It was professionally scripted and professionally cast, professional actors and actresses, and I'll tell you Soviet Union. The wonderful news is, in a phone call two nights ago with the folks that are doing this, told me that every single performance is sold out, but more importantly, at every single performance, high-ranking government officials are coming. Communist, atheist, government officials, members of the Politburo, they call it, members of Parliament, they call it there. And high-ranking academic heads, university heads, people like that are coming, coming. To, and everyone who comes receives the New Testament as they leave. That's just one of many, many things the Lord is doing there right now. I want to say in summary that overall in the Soviet Union, here's what you have today. You have about a half a million born-again Christians who for all these years have not been allowed to express themselves the way God has equipped them and called them to express themselves. They've been allowed to share the truth of the Word of God. They have not been allowed to even, even engage in acts of love and mercy. They haven't even been allowed... Charity was even forbidden. You couldn't even help someone in need. You couldn't go to visit someone in a prison. You couldn't go to visit someone in a hospital because they, they wanted their people to think that the only good people in the country were the government and the party. They, they wanted them to somehow believe that which, of course, wasn't the truth in which they didn't believe. But that's what they tried to make happen. And so you have this church so pure and so fervent. And you have this population of about 287 million people who are starved for truth, starved for truth. 
doesn't matter who you... I gave a Bible to a taxi driver one night, and he said, me? I could keep it? I could have a Bible? That's how it is all across the country. All across the country. So the 286 million people in the world there are starved for truth. And they're starved for love. And then you've got the church. Half a million people. Ready to give them the truth. Ready to love them. And the government saying, go for it, church. Go for it. I want to tell you, if we are steadfast in prayer and God continues to keep the doors open in the Soviet Union, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a revival across that country that will shake the whole planet. And I believe we'll even shake and cause an awakening here in the West in our own churches when they begin to get a glimpse of what God is doing there. Lord willing, Dr. Smith and I, Dr. Charles Smith, Dean of our seminary, will soon be going to the Soviet Union to teach in basically the first seminary. In fact, we were due to leave this afternoon at 3.30, working feverish, feverishly, last-minute problems with the visa. I just called him before chapel and said, Chuck, we're not going to be able to go today. I've just been talking to Moscow. There's some problems. Uh, There's going to be a few-day delay. They brought students from all 15 republics to come to learn what a seminary is with the idea that then in September they would begin one on a regular basis at this 30-day seminary. And then in a couple of weeks, uh, Dr. Da- uh, or Professor David Duell uh, and Professor Jim Stitzinger, both of our seminary, will join us uh, and will be given opportunity to provide the theological uh, teaching for this seminary session in Moscow. So now we're, we, we, we need your prayer uh, also for the visa problem. Uh, little bureaucracy problems there. Uh, many phone calls back and forth to Russia, back and forth to the embassy in Washington. I think it will open up in a couple of days, uh, but we really need your prayers so that the Spirit of God can break through this bureaucracy. And I, I, Satan doesn't want us over there. Satan doesn't want us there, but we know the Lord does. So that's about what I have to say this morning, I guess. And... Uh, uh, I just want to thank you for your prayer support. I want to thank you for um, um, things that have occurred here over the years. Uh, the rumor, I think, is out that, that I'll be in a new assignment uh, on a primary basis, that now our life's work is going to be focused on helping the gospel and helping to get into closed countries, helping the churches in countries where missionaries can't go, beginning with the Soviet Union. We will be moving uh, to the Detroit area. I'll be... Uh, primarily with a mission agency called Send International, uh, although we're thrilled that we will continue to have an official tie here at the Master's College and Seminary where I'll, I'll continue as Vice President for International Education. So, Lord willing, we'll get to see each other from time to time. And I'm looking forward to how God is going to just use you guys. I mean, this, this college is so positioned, our seminary is so positioned, uh, as we're clearly in the last days, as you purpose in your hearts to be serious about following the Lord. He's going to use you. You're going to have adventures in this country and around the world, adventures uh, that, that, that are like that, that have seldom ever occurred in all of history. And I'll be praying for you. I'm looking at the cue card as to what happens right now. Here he is. Oh, John. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Bob, for sharing with us. Um, I think most of us who know you well, and of course we work together not only here but as elders at Grace Church and as friends, and most of us who know Bob well knew, or at least uh, strongly felt, that once he had gone to Russia and been exposed to the opportunity there, given his background, I don't know if you know this, but it was at, was it at Syracuse? Bob, where you majored in Russian, and after graduating with a degree in Russian, then uh, went into the military as a Russian language expert and had the highest security clearance that America gives for that. And wondering, and that was before you were a Christian, not knowing why you were taking Russian. And now all of a sudden, in God's perfect timing, Russia opens up and everybody starts zeroing in on you because of your knowledge of Russian, your passion for the world. Uh, your marvelous creativity, which makes you perfect to be in charge of creative access countries where you have to be creative in getting in. You can't just say, here I am, Bob, provost, Christian missionary. Uh, you, you have to approach it a little bit differently. And uh, so we kind of knew when you went to Russia that this might be the, the hand of God, and now we're so very, very thrilled and excited. I, I want to tell you, last night the elders met at Grace Church, and... Uh, voted unanimously to take over the whole support of your ministry needs. So I just wanted to tell you that. So you don't have to worry about that. That's something you don't have to raise. And uh, they made that commitment last night in about five minutes after I presented it. Not that they're anxious to see you go, <laughs> but that they just are not anxious to see you hang around here trying to raise money. So we want to take the responsibility to cover that 35000 a year for the next two years at least, so you can get on the way and do the work. And uh, we think the Lord's going to provide all the rest, too. So we're real excited about that. And we, we, we're excited about the partnership. I, I have felt like uh, in some ways for the last five years having Bob here uh, was selfish on my part and kind of kept him prisoner. And every once in a while he'd come to me and say, i got to go to the mission field. you got to let me go. Last summer he came and said, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in the mission field. i got to go. So he said, Louetta and I just need to go. And so when he goes, he goes. He went all the way around the whole world. And uh, that's, that's his burning passion. So we're very, very excited about the way God is working. As Bob said, he will continue um, to be a part of us. He needs to have an identity with an educational institute like this, an educational organization, a college, in order to get access into countries on an educational level. So he will be a vice president for international education, which is a a pretty grandiose title for this little college in Newhall, California. Uh, but uh, I'm, we're game. I mean, you know, why not? Master's College East in Moscow. I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, or, or wherever else the Lord may decide to plant you and, and plant us. Some of you young people, I don't know if uh, this uh, would certainly excite me, but... Some of you young people, no doubt, will have some of your mission trip opportunities directed toward Russia and Eastern European countries. In fact, I think we're going to try to send a half a dozen young people there this summer to help them with youth ministry, which they know nothing about. And we might say, well, we don't know much, but we probably know a little more than they do since they don't know anything about that. And so there's much to be done. I'm, I'm looking forward to the possibility myself of going and speaking at the first pastor's conference in Moscow and uh, some exciting things ahead. So we're very, very glad for what God has done in Bob's life. And, of course, I know by the applause and, and just by your attentiveness to him as he shared his heart that you already feel the loss of his spiritual leadership here. But um, 
he is God's man and God has chosen to move him in the direction of his own will. And for that we rejoice and that's the way it is in life. And uh, we're all a part of the same work, the same Lord, the same church, the same kingdom. And we share our resources as God so designs. So we're very, very thankful. We also uh, are concerned about the college, naturally, because when you pull a man of uh, his stature out, there's a large and significant hole left. And, and so with much concern and prayer, uh, we sought to know what God's will would be for the future direction. And, and the Lord has led us to this particular point uh, to a place where we feel He has really revealed His perfect will for us. You know, the Lord doesn't have a, a will for one person's life and then create a vacuum somewhere else. In the Lord's perfect timing, everything fits. And so we were very grateful for the availability of Jim Rickard, who has been chairman of the board of the college for a number of years and has been functioning in his ministry right here on this campus. And Jim has willingly and eagerly stepped into the role of executive vice president, interim executive vice president, for the next couple of months just to manage the day-to-day -day operations of the college and keep us on track, particularly financially, which, of course, is a very, very important matter for us. And he is already doing that and doing that uh, with uh, tremendous blessing and encouragement from everyone working with him. So we were grateful we had a man right here ready to do that. And then we were sitting in an administrative meeting one day and the men were saying, you know, as we select a, a, a final and a permanent uh, man for that position, um, the suggestion was made that he ought to be qualified in two ways. One, he should come to us with experience in an academic environment like this. Two, he should come from within this ministry in some way so that he really understands the uniqueness of it and the philosophy of ministry and, and the people and all of that. And, and that was wisdom and that was exactly the direction that I wanted to go. The Lord had already provided such a man who has had that kind of experience and who is one of us in terms of being involved in the broader ministry. That man is Don Hescott. I don't, Don, is Don here this morning? Are you here, Don? No, he's not here this morning? Okay. Well, we'll be introducing him to you later. I first met Don Hescott a number of years ago when I became a trustee of the Moody Bible Institute. Um, I've been a trustee at Moody for seven or eight years. And... Um, I met Don because Don was the executive vice president of the Moody Bible Institute. He had the responsibility basically for running all the Moody operation, including the school, the press, Moody Press, Moody Monthly Magazine, Moody Radio, Moody School of Aviation. All of the facets of Moody were under his leadership, and he had about a half a dozen vice presidents working under him as he gave the full direction to Moody. When Dr. Sweeting, then president of Moody, retired from that role, became chancellor. Don also stepped back. And I asked him if he'd come out and be executive director of the Master's Communication, Word of Grace Radio, and, and all of that. And he agreed. And for the last two years plus, Don has been giving the leadership, complete leadership, to our radio, tape, publication, media ministry, and to the Master's Fellowship ministry as well lately. And here we had right with us the man who for 16 years was executive vice president of the Moody Bible Institute. A gifted man, a godly man, a people person, a skilled administrator, manager, and the Lord had put him right there in the right spot. So I went to him and I said, Don, you have one job. How about two? Most of us have two. 
the jobs and responsibilities, and we began to talk, and he wanted to pray. And after much prayer and concern and discussion, he has agreed that right around the 1st of April, Don Hescott will become Executive Vice President of the Master's College and Seminary. We are very, very rich in relationships and in leadership that God has given to us. I have said to Bob on a couple of occasions that the first five years of my involvement in this college demanded that he be my partner in that. I believe with all my heart that he was God's man for that five years. I also believe with all my heart that he is God's man to step into this tremendous need in Russia and in the creative access countries now. And I also believe that Don Hescott is God's man to step into this role now. And as I look at these gifted men that God has given us, it is again another indication of how God has so profoundly blessed this institution. We're not talking about normal people here. We're talking about uniquely gifted people. And we know that that is an evidence of God's hand upon us. So it's a kind of a sweet and sour thing in some ways because we cherish friendships and fellowship together as we think about Bob leaving. But we also know that this is a greater calling for him at this point in his life. We need to pray, too, for Luetta at this time. I think if you young people and faculty can remember, it's a time of new experience, a time when the family kind of gets scattered. And that's real important to mom. And I think they would both be encouraged by our prayers for them, particularly for Luetta at a time like this when things are changing rather rapidly. And Bob tends to move very fast. And we need to be praying for Jim Rickard in the interim and then for Don Hescott as he comes to be with us. And speaking of prayer, I think it would be fitting to have a, a sort of a send-off prayer this morning for these men going to Russia. Isn't it amazing that out of the whole world, the Lord chose four people from the Master's Seminary to go over and be the first people outside Russia to start a seminary in Russia? I mean, that's a big country. Did you tell them there are 11 time zones in Russia? That's a big place. That is a big place. And why the Lord came to Newhall to get these four guys. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, here we go on a great adventure. And uh, so I'm going to ask, uh, Bob, would you come back? And uh, David Duell, who teaches Hebrew. Dr. Charles Smith, who's dean, and Jim Stitzinger, who teaches in our church history area, and also some of the biblical exposition courses at the Master Seminary. These four men are going to be our representatives. I don't really know what they're going to say other than Bob, because uh, none of them speak Russian or anything remotely related to it. But uh, they're going to be translated, and uh, we just want to kind of put our arms around them and, and pray for them. I'm going to ask uh, Dan Odom to come, representing our student body, Dan, and also Dr. Taylor Jones, representing our faculty, and uh, we'll ask them to lead us in prayer for these men, and then I'll close briefly. Dan? Let's pray. Our heavenly gracious Father, Lord, we are reminded what a mighty God we serve. Lord, that in your eyes and, and your power and your ability, Lord, there's no state or country that you cannot or do not penetrate. Father, and we just praise you and we thank you for allowing us to just be a part of your omniscient plan. 
Lord, I pray for these men. Lord, as this whole student body, Father, I pray that our hearts and our, our prayers might be continually burdened and reminded that these men are doing your will. Father, that our hearts might be bonded to be praying for them. Father, for the families. Lord, that your message might go out pure and undefiled. Lord, you promised us that. Lord, help us to be proper representatives of that. Be with us, Lord, as we send them off. Lord, do your will and do your planning with these men. We ask this in thy name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich privilege that we have, that we have access to the eternal sovereign, the one who controls all things. And we have that access through his Son, because we have by your grace and your mercy and your love in our lives participated in his death. We thank you for these men, these choice servants whom you have raised up, and you have allowed us the rich privilege of the benefit of their ministry in our midst. And now, Father, you have imparted in their hearts a willingness to go forth and serve, that you have equipped them with your grace that is manifested in their faithfulness and the clarity of doctrine that you have burdened their hearts with. And then, Father, you have worked the circumstances for them to go out. We thank you for them. And we thank you for the rich privilege we have to participate in that ministry, for we will be with them in spirit. So we pray that you might make us faithful to pray for them, to uplift them, and to encourage them through our prayers, and also, Father, to encourage the hearts of their families in their absence. We thank you as they go forth in their ministry that it might be a ministry of evangelism, Father, that we know you have people of every kindred, tribe, and tongue that you will redeem. So we pray that you might give them the privilege of working in redemption. And we know, Father, that you will give them a great ministry of edification and encouragement. So we pray, Father, that you might do that as well, that the saints might be built up in the most holy faith. We are not unaware, Father, that Satan would seek to thwart and undermine this at every opportunity. But we draw again, Father, strength from your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not pervade against that. So we pray that you might give them safety, that you might give them strength of character, that you might give them protection, and that you might give them, Father, just the ever-present comfort of your knowledge through your spirit, that they might work your perfect and sovereign will, and will praise you for how you use them for the glory of Christ and for the advancement of his kingdom. For we pray in his name.